Alright friends, I invite you to get your uh, Bibles open. Turn into your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Okay, so if you turn to your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we will uh, hear from God's word this morning, and then offer some uh, reflections, unpacking a little bit of what Peter is saying in these verses. And our scripture reading is going to be from verse 13 through 21. But as we looked at verse 13 through 17, or last week, excuse me, verse, verse uh, 13 through 16 last week, we're going to be looking at 17 through 21 in, um, uh, in depth a little bit more this morning. And so, having turned there to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you will follow along as I read. And again, as I prayed just a moment ago, it's so vitally important that um, given what it is that we're reading here, this is not just an ancient letter. Uh, written by a man to just a group of people. Um, it is that. It's more than that. This is the very words of God. And so when we understand these words, what, what Peter intended to write and what Peter, guided by the Holy Spirit, wrote, we realize these are for us. These are God's words spoken to us for our benefit. And so, given that, it's vitally important that we understand that we need ears that are attentive to hearing what God would say to us here. Sometimes God gives us charges and commands. Um, other times, through God's word, he gives us uh, uh, what we call the indicatives the statements of things that he has accomplished for us and that the command is merely to believe and to receive them. And so this morning, let us have ears ready to hear what God would have for us. First Peter chapter one, verses 13 through 21. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. And, and indeed, God, we do come with ears ready to hear what you'd have for us. And so, God, here in the next few moments, as we go through each of these words uh, in depth, we pray that you would, by your spirit, cause us to truly grasp and understand the weight of these words. We ask this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. So Peter has just given a command to these uh, elect exiles, these sojourners and strangers who are suffering hardship for being a Christian in this world. And he says, after talking to them about all of the blessings that they have received from God's hand at the most of the beginning of chapter one, he now jumps kind of into the beginning of his exhortation to them that runs throughout the rest of the letter. And it begins with, as we saw last week, uh, be ready for holiness. He began with prepare your minds for action or girding up your loins. Like we saw in that imagery of the guy who pulls up all of his robe, tucks it into his belt because he's ready for action. He's ready to move. He's ready for holiness. This is how Peter began. It's what we looked at last week. And what we saw in verses 17 through 21 is kind of a continuation of that. A little bit more of the motivation for why uh, we should do holiness. He gave a little motivation last week when he said, you should be holy as it is written. Uh, be holy as I am holy, the Lord says. So he says, you should be holy because God is holy. But then he gives some more uh, details and elaborates that a little bit. So think of this as part two from last week. So how does he encourage them in their holy walk as they are sojourning through this world? Well, three things notice today. First, reverence. And you could follow along in your handout. The reverence, he says, have reverence or fear of God. Fear your God, he says. Notice first, he says, and if, kind of starts off with a little hypothetical here. It's not really a hypothetical. He's saying this is what you do, in fact, uh, do. You invoke God as your father. If, and if you call on him as father. Okay, notice God as father here. That forms the basis of what he's about to say. You have a special relationship with God. God is your heavenly father. Jesus taught us to pray that our father who art in heaven. So God is our father. One of the, the blessings that we have as Christians, if you have faith in Christ, is that you have been brought into the family of God. You've been made his children. We have given the privilege and the rights of being called children of God is how Another apostle, John, began his gospel. So we get the opportunity to call God as our father. And so Paul, or excuse me, Peter, addressing this church, says, hey, you get to call God as your father. However, keep in mind something about this God as father. 
He's not just God the Father, he is also God the Judge. And even if God become, is also God the Judge, um, you, him being your father doesn't remove him as, as judge. Okay, so let me read here what it says again in verse 17. And if you call on or invoke, is another way of putting that verb, if you call on or invoke God as your father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He wants to remind them the God that we call on Father is also the judge. A couple things to notice about God as judge. He's, uh, he's an impartial judge. As Peter says here, who judges impartially means God has perfect knowledge and he administers perfect justice. He, he is not blinded in any way. Justice, the justice of God is absolutely perfect and he judges totally impartially. Does not show favoritism. The judgment that God issues, it will actually be conducted through Christ. In a couple of verses here, you could turn here if you want to, but you may want to write these down uh, as I'll read them. John John's gospel in John chapter 5, Jesus says this word, these words to the disciples, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority, okay, this is he, God the father has given him, God the son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. That's John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 10. And he, in reference here, it's Christ Jesus. And he, Christ Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So God the Father is, is judge, but uh, Christ is also judging along with the Father. He's given the authority. He's basically saying... Uh, Christ has the same stature as God the Father. And Paul preaches the same thing in Acts chapter 17. He says the times of ignorance God has overlooked. This is in the famous sermon that he gave in Athens, Greece. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is this man? He tells us. And of this he has given assurance by, to all by raising him, that man, from the dead. That's Jesus. So God is an impartial judge. Judgment is conducted through Christ. And the standard for the judgment we find is given in Romans chapter 2. Where Paul says... The day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. What's the standard, the basis for God's judgment? Rendering to each according to his works on how they would follow the law. To those who 
By patience and well-doing, seek glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. That's the standard. Paul goes on from here and he explains in the next chapter. And by the way, uh, even though that is the standard of all humanity, nobody ends up living up to it. So God is an impartial judge. He judges through Christ. The standard is on our achieving perfect works according to his moral law. But he also will judge every person, every individual of the human race. We saw that a little bit here. He will render to each one, Jew first and Greek, Paul said. But a couple of other places. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So he says Jew and Greek, living and dead. It doesn't matter. It's going to judge every single person. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter, even a little later in this letter, if you flip over chapter four, verse five, he says, and they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He judges every single person. And this is important. He will even judge Christians. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10, for it says, for we, and he's writing to a church here, he's writing to Christians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, it is true that even though Christians will be judged, we don't have the fear of condemnation at the judgment because of what Christ has done. Nevertheless, there still is a judgment for Christians. Everyone, without exception, will experience, will have to face God the judge. We don't have, as Christians, don't have to uh, fear the condemnations, but Christians will also be judged by the judge. And therefore, we must recognize what's the only appropriate response to that is Fear and reverence. That's what Peter is getting at here. If you call on God as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, therefore conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile with fear and reverence to God. So this is the way I tried to kind of write my own paraphrase for this verse to kind of unpack a little bit what he's saying. And so this is what I wrote. Probably could use some revision. Maybe you could give me some help. The God who is your heavenly father is also still the judge who administers perfect justice in real time. So do not think that because you can call on him as father or invoke his name as father, you are somehow exempt from receiving corrections or punishments for not doing your duty to him out of love and reverence that he deserves okay that's my long-winded summary of what peter is saying in this verse and i'll say it again the god who is your heavenly father is also still the judge who administers perfect justice in real time so do not think that because you can call on him 
as father and invoke his name as father, you are somehow exempt from receiving some correction and punishments for not doing your duty to him out of the love and reverence he deserves. So reverence. What should motivate our holiness? Well, first of all, that God is holy and that we as his people should imitate his holiness. And second, we should do so out of reverence, reverential fear for who he is. We have no fear of condemnation because Christ has has received that condemnation from us, for us. But we still, nevertheless, will have to stand before the Lord and answer for how we conducted ourselves in the time of your exile, Peter says. So that's the first thing to remember. Reverence, fear, reverential fear. Now, this is not like a terror. This is a, a reverential, deep respect for who God is. Second, redemption. And now here we get to kind of this meat of this passage that's so, so rich and so beautiful. And here, Peter is speaking about the pricelessness of Christ's blood. The pricelessness of Christ's blood. Going on, and again, I should have said this, verses 17 through 21 is all one sentence in Greek. It's all one sentence. So this is building off of what he had said. It says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then he says this, put this away, tuck this in your mind, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed. This is a humongous word. Ransom or redemption. Those are two different ways to describe this this concept. Here it's, it's the verb, and it has the distinct sense of to purchase someone's freedom by paying the purchase price, which is the ransom. Okay? So redeem or to ransom, to buy back, Someone off of the auction block is also the the picture here. To purchase someone's freedom. Now, in secular contexts in the ancient world, in in Peter's day, it was used of, you know, purchasing somebody who had who had for whatever reason through capture by another country or something like that was caused to be a slave and that some family member or some uh, benefactor came and actually purchased their freedom from their captors. And so they would have to go and pay a price because maybe that person sold themselves into slavery out of debt to to this other family, or maybe they were captured. And they, in order to obtain their freedom, a price needed to be paid. And so this is kind of the secular terminology. Ransom is the price that was paid. Redemption is the, this whole process of buying them back. And this is the, the, the imagery that Peter is using here. Knowing that you were ransomed. You were enslaved. And Christ, God, bought you. He paid a price for you. For your freedom. This is a a theme all throughout scripture. Titus chapter two. We saw this in our Titus series. You may remember Jesus Christ gave himself for us to 
redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for himself. There's that redeem language. Christ gave himself to redeem us. Peter was there when he heard the words of Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10. When Jesus said, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Redemption. Paul says this in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul exhorts this church at Corinth to flee from sexual immorality. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And he reminds them, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. This is a reference to that redemption language. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, he says. Now notice our need for redemption here. So you were redeemed. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. I love that picture there. He's not just talking about like the traditions that would have been handed down to them. Although that would be certainly be the case. I think he's talking here about uh, not just our like the sins that my parents were troubled by or tempted with. Or the sins that my grandparents may have been troubled by or tempted with. Or my great great grandparents. I think here he's talking about the whole line of humanity that goes all the way back to Adam. In Paul's letters, he makes this quite clear that, that all of humankind is in one of two persons. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. We have an inherited sinful condition that we've received from Adam. So our sinful rebellion against God comes in kind of two, two ways. One, it, it actually comes from the result of our own decisions and our own actions and our own thoughts. But it also comes because we inherit that from our forefathers all the way back to Adam. I'll put it this way. Sin is, sin is genetic. It's in our DNA. And this is why it's, it's never really appropriate to say when confronted with some sort of sin, like that God made me that way. Um, I know that there's sometimes there's a tendency today to explain away certain kinds of uh, things that the Bible claims are sins and to say, but that's just who I am. That's just how uh, it's so connected. The impulses are so strong that it just feels like it's it's so much a part of my identity. Right? Have you heard this in in some places? How can this be wrong when it feels like it just feels like so right for who I am? 
Well, a couple of, uh, of errors about this view is that it assumes that our fallen condition, that, uh, that in our fallen condition, we will naturally hate sin. But the Bible is quite clear that in our fallen condition, we actually love sin. And if we love sin, we also hate God's holiness and hate God himself. And so when, when they say, but I feel like this is so much a part of who I am, it's a part of my identity. My, our, the initial, I think many years ago, I would have said, well, no, no, I would try to argue, no, it isn't. And now when you read and understand all of the scripture, you would say, yes, it is. Because sin is inherited. It's a part of our nature. It feels so natural because it is so deeply embedded in your um, in your spiritual DNA, so to speak. That's, I think, what, what Peter is getting at. You, the futile ways or the vain ways, the vain uh, way of conducting your life that you've inherited all the way through, from, uh, from your, your lineage all the way back to Adam. So here's the question. If it's uh, so futile and yet so embedded in our nature... These ways that we've inherited from our, our fathers, then what hope could we possibly have of putting that away and being accepted by God? The answer is redemption. You have to be bought back off of that auction block of slavery. You need to be rescued. You need to be purchased out of slavery from those feudal ways. And then to be made new again by Christ. That's the only way. And that, would, that is what Peter says God does here. God ransoms sinners. God buys back sinners. God is buying back off of the auction block of slavery those who, frankly, don't don't deserve it and don't have the value. I think it's an error to sometimes think that God pays this price because he looks and sees so much value in you that he, it's just a good deal. No, he redeems sinners from their futile way of life. And yet he still pays that price. What is that price? Here's the, here's the third part. Redemption. Um, the, uh, the price of our redemption. Actually, we haven't gone to three yet. What is the price? The price of our redemption is, is seen in verse 18 in the second half. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Okay? So not with things that... And he's already mentioned these before, right? He talked about your, the tested genuineness of your faith in uh, verse 7. is more precious than gold. Well, why is your faith more precious than gold? Because our faith is placed in something far more valuable than gold. The preciousness of the blood of Christ in verse 19. We're not redeemed with material things, worldly things like gold and silver, but rather with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were redeemed 
by the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. That's how precious the blood is. And the imagery Peter's drawing from here is from the kind of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. You needed to offer a perfect one-year-old perfect lamb, no spot or blemish. Peter's saying that lamb was a type. It was a picture of the one who was to come, and that is that is Christ. That's the price of your redemption. The price of your redemption from your slavery to sin was the precious blood of Christ. And let's look a little bit more at this Christ in number three, the redemption, the preordination of God's plan. This is how Peter kind of rounds this out. It says, conduct yourselves in this way with fear, knowing you are ransomed. God paid the highest possible price for you to be redeemed. With the precious blood of Christ. And then he goes, he wants to elaborate a little bit here on this plan of Christ's blood redeeming you. This preordination, the preordination of God's plan. A couple of things to notice here. Christ's eternal pre-existence. He, referring to Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, the word foreknown here can mean like I just I know in advance something. We talked about this a little bit before that knowing something in advance. But when you're talking about God and his knowledge and his advanced knowledge of things, that's not um, that's not like, oh, he becomes aware of some kind of thing that's happening in the future. And that's how he's acquired knowledge of that, right? And like you've heard me say this before. I had a professor one time who said, God is not in the knowledge acquisition business. If he speaks about something he foreknows, it's because he's planned it. He's planned it. So here, the foreknowledge of Christ before the foundation of the world is speaking of God's plan for Christ to come and offer his blood as a price for our redemption. Christ's eternal pre-existence, Christ's incarnation, the other half of uh, verse 20, but he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times, in these last time, for the sake of you. The coming of Christ into the world was a part of God's predetermined plan and he says this unbelievable statement for your sake so he mentions christ's eternal pre-existence christ's incarnation christ's crucifixion and resurrection in verse 21 where he says god who raised him from the dead this is the resurrection of christ and the dead there is connected to his crucifixion on a cross where that precious blood was shed. And then he references Christ's exaltation and gave him glory. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. It's a reference to Christ being uh, ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the father in heaven. 
little, just in that little short span there, Peter uh, encompasses the entire work of Christ. His eternal pre-existence part of uh, God's plan preordained from the beginning of time that he was going to come as a redeemer. And that he comes into human history. He manifests himself in human history in the incarnation. And that he goes to the cross where that blood is shed and that God raises him from the dead and then exalts him to the right hand of uh, the Father in heaven. It's amazing. And he says, all of this is for your sake if you trust in Christ. All of this is for you. All of this provides the basis for our faith in Christ. Notice that it says at the end of verse 21. So your faith and hope are in God. And that faith in Christ is the avenue to God, which is how it begins verse 21. Who through him are believers in God. Peter wants to say to this, this group of Christians experiencing difficulty and hardship and living the Christian life. And he says, keep doing it. Be holy because God is. But also remember, God will judge. You don't you don't get a pass to live however you want. You need to live in accordance with how he calls us to live to honor his son Christ. And then he reminds them, but but keep this in mind. Keep this in the mind in the middle of your struggle to live a holy life in reverential fear of God, keep in mind he ransomed you. And that this was all part of his plan. He ransomed you. Your holiness was a part of his purpose in sending his son. So I wrote this, our reverent obedience to our heavenly father stems directly from the knowledge of the price of the redemption that was paid for our salvation and for our restoration and this price was not only paid by god but he planned to do so before the foundation of the world he set his foreknowledge and plan to save wayward sinners through his son jesus christ and his suffering and his resurrection and his exaltation were all part of that plan to save you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that glorious? How do we receive this? By trusting in him. Our faith and hope are in God, Peter says, to them and to us. Before we close with a, a song to kind of mark this, because there's a line in this this next song that we're going to be singing that says, see the price of your redemption. Before we do sing, let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we praise you. For this grand redemption that you have accomplished. We praise you for Christ. And his eternal 
pre-existence that from that he was known and planned that he would come and suffer from before the foundation of the world. We thank you that at the right time in human history, you brought him into this world. We thank you for his cross and his resurrection. And we thank you that you have glorified him. God, we ask that as Peter encouraged these Christians so long ago to maintain their walk and their living of the Christian life through the awareness of the price that was paid for them. God, we would pray that you would do the same for us, that you remind us every day of the price that was paid for our redemption. And that through the marvel and the wonder of that glorious work that you have accomplished through Christ, that you would give us the strength to walk in faithful and reverential obedience to you. We ask you do this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we sing, Come Behold the Wonders Mystery?
brothers and sisters, may this week and every day forevermore you remember to see the price of your redemption in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.